right. Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 75. Can you believe it, Kelly? I can't believe it. I can't believe it at all. It's just insane. It's insane that I've been coding for three years. I've been uh, four years. This is our fourth year together in a classroom. Crazy. I know. It's uh, it's hard to fathom. We've been doing uh, quite a bit over the last three, four years. And uh, as you can uh, definitely imagine, it has been um, kind of a busy school year. I mean, you don't have to imagine it. You were here with me. But as our viewers can imagine, it's been a really bu busy uh, school year. I, I, I mean, I guess I, the only thing I have to be thankful for, I actually have many things to be thankful for, but the thing I'm most thankful for about the start of this school year is that um, it is definitely not as uh, crazy and hectic and busy as last year was. So compared to last year, I feel like we can do anything. I don't know. This year for me has been crazy busy. Um, but the COVID and Zoom feature that we don't have that going on right now is kind of a a nice thing. We're all getting organized. We're a little bit of a mess. If you can hear uh, Sean's moving around a mic. Yeah, I think, I think I've got it now. We got a little bit of reverb going on, but it's, it's what, it's what happened. So thank you guys for joining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to have, uh, have a few listeners join in um, and we'll get them on the stream here. So hopefully we can get some questions and answers going as well. Uh, maybe you can tweet out the, uh, the link now that we're live and, uh, and share it with everyone. All right, let me see. What's our tweet? <laughs> <laughs> we're we're here. <laughs> we're here. Come party with us. Uh, it's it's lunchtime. It's uh, it's time to talk about what's been going on. I think we've been we've been pretty busy, and there's been a lot of progress. And I, I was looking at it, it. We're almost a month since the last time we recorded, so there's a lot to cover. So I don't know if it's a win of the week or a win of the month, but why don't we start there because that's what we we normally go with. All right. So when of the week, when of the month, uh, successfully launched uh, our project, Classlink. Um, Got to turn this down a little bit. And everybody's up and running. Apps are running fine. I am living in about 50 to 100 emails a day. I'm getting my... <laughs> I'm keeping my inbox down, so it's nice. But that's all boring stuff. I think the biggest win this week has been my sixth graders. <laughs> I am so, so, so stoked. I can't even tell you how excited I am about these sixth graders. I tweeted out um, a couple of days ago all the concepts that we've covered already. Is this the third week of school? Not even, like, right? Third week of school? Two and a half. Two and a half. We've covered print statement. We've covered assigning variables. We've covered... Input, basic conditionals, um, equal to oper you know the the operators. We started for loops. I even threw in methods because one kid kept saying, "But what if it's an S and it ends with an S? We can't put apostrophe S." And I'm like, "Oh my god, kid, we're gonna go into string manipulation already in the second week of school. What the heck?" So we went into ends with, starts with. We did the dot title, dot upper. These are things that I was really covering four weeks, five weeks into the quarter. And now I'm already doing it. I'm so, so excited about these sixth graders. It's just off the charts. That's awesome. I mean, I definitely think the students are the win of the month, right? <laughs> like it is, it's great to have them back. And and it's great to have the the opportunity to, to meet with them again and to see where they are. And I, I think to your point, 
uh, if your sixth graders are the win, the eighth graders are the win for me. They are just flying through um, the content. And and really what I love to see is the way that they're thinking through the problems and the way they're researching and the, re- the way they're finding stuff. And I've done some activities where I've, uh, I've done like a little daily coding challenge with my seventh graders and the eighth graders, and I'll do the same challenge. And the seventh graders tend to struggle a little bit more to find the right information and decode and decipher the problem statement. And the eighth graders are just getting it consistently over and over again. And I think part of that's because I am being more specific and more prescriptive with the language that I'm using for the challenges. And the eighth graders are already more used to it after their two previous years in coding. But the seventh graders are still getting the hang of it and still trying to figure out, like, what does this actually mean? So it's it's been really good to see that. So my one of the week is absolutely the students and getting to code with them and getting to see what what they're able to do. This is the product, right? This is our our third year with these kids in their eighth grade year. So this this should be a solid product. I'm I'm excited. I taught these kids in sixth grade. It was bumpy. <laughs> it was bumpy their first sixth grade year. I'm not going to lie to anyone, but seventh grade turned out great. The seventh grade year with them was amazing. So I I just see great things coming out from them. So excited. yeah. Good I, win. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting about this is that um, I think by eighth grade, they start to realize that the bumps are normal and that they're part of the process. Right. In sixth grade, it might be really daunting for them to try to overcome those issues, the roadblocks, the stumbles, the I don't get it's the frustration. And now that they're eighth graders, they recognize that I felt this before and I got through it. So I'm going to get through this also. Absolutely. I agree. Fails this week. Uh, <laughs> too many to list yeah, no it's just there's there's a lot of things that have been have feeling like you're kind of slogging through so nothing that's really a, a impediment but just things like lots of ipads that need um need updates and changes now that we're really getting into the middle part of the the start of the year like the start start is over now we're in the middle start um now they're using more and more of the technology in the classroom and and what's happening on my side is that I am the one who kind of who gets everything escalated to me. So I'm spending more time troubleshooting more advanced issues or solving some problems that are just a little weird or are hard to uncover. And I'm making progress, but it seems like for every two that you knock down another two or three pop up. So it's kind of normal, I guess. The fails just it's going slower than I would like. I, I just wish it would go faster and I could get through them quicker. Yeah. I think um one of the fails I'm experiencing this year is um, I had such a bonding experience with the sixth graders last year and their seventh graders this year. And um, they're very comfortable in the room. We made it, we made it so that um, we make it every year that our students understand that this is their classroom. This is their space. Um, If they need to take a moment, take a break, they can take a break. If they need to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. So my seventh graders, I'm kind of trying to, bring them back a little bit. They're very comfortable. They walk in. It's like, Hey, I'm here in computer science and I'm, I'm comfortable. I can be myself, but at the same time, you know, they forget that they can be loud (laughs) and they can get unfocused. So I think a big fail is just the fact of not reeling them back in into coding, but we did do some code alongs. They, they do love code alongs. That's usually how I corral them back from the psycho psychotic events that happen when they code by themselves. So more code alongs this year, I see. 
I think so. And it's interesting. Um, and I guess we can make this kind of our first first topic for discussion is creating that environment, especially at the beginning of the year, or the beginning of a quarter, whenever you have students coming in, how do you create that environment for them to code in and be creative in while not letting it become a free for all, right? Like there has to be some sort of boundaries, guidelines, guardrails that keep them focused and encourage that uh, creativity in their coding and that that mental flexibility that they need. But how do you ensure that that is, you know, not taken too far, right? So what are the, some of the things that you do early on to establish the classroom environment? So I guess I'll, I'll stick with the sixth graders because they're new into the, into this middle school. And the first thing I establish is uh, a, a an immediate comfort. I want them to understand that they come into this classroom. It's totally different. They're not little fifth graders anymore, that this is their classroom. They need to respect it. They need to respect when somebody's speaking and they need to be ready to listen, but at the same time, not afraid to speak out and, um, protect what they want to say. Is that, I'm trying to explain it. They, I want them to feel comfortable enough to say, hey, you need to stop. You need to slow down. I need this question answered, but I need to let, sorry, I need to let them know that they have to wait to, to the right moment. So we kind of establish this routine of one second I'm talking or one second it's so-and-so's turn or one second I've already answered a question from you. I'm going to come back to you. Just hold that question, but I need to help somebody else first. So I want them to feel like uh, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to be themselves. It's okay to explore the, the space, but respect others. So that's a huge thing for me. Yeah, I, I like to think of it as um, advocating for yourself, right? So the student needs to advocate for themselves in a, you know, a, a confident, self-asserted way, even when they don't necessarily feel that way. They may feel like they don't get it or that they may be feeling demoralized or run down by maybe a string of things that aren't working, but that's the best time to advocate for themselves and say, I need help. You know, retreating into yourself and, and just kind of giving up is not what we want them to do. We want them to be able to take that step forward and say, okay, I, I've reached the limits of what I can do. I'm going to advocate for myself to get the help that I need. And there's the other side of that balance too, which is you also don't want them to be too quick to ask for help, right? So sometimes that wait a moment, right? Or wait for your moment is another way to put it. Wait for your moment to be able to ask that question. And by the time they get to the moment where it's, it's a good opportunity for them, they've already solved their problem. Yeah. So we see that a lot, right? Like I see that a lot with my students where they you know, I got to have this answer right now. And by the time I actually get back to them, they've found the answer for themselves. Yeah. We, I experience it a lot with sixth grade. You've, you've had enough of you and I on the eighth grade years of saying, no, go back, struggle. <clears throat> but in the first couple of weeks, um, they read a problem and we start them on pie bites right away. Shout out to Julian and Bob for getting pie bites running for us so quickly this school year. So that was a freebie, Julian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we get them on newbie bites right away and they read the problem and it's something they can easily solve. Like something is assigned to something and they miss a S or they miss a extra or they put an extra white space and they immediately go, I can't do it. I, I can't do it. And they come running up to the class, to the teacher, or they come running up to their friend and they're 
so eager to ask somebody to find the answer by asking somebody um, that they are afraid to sit there and not seek help. Right. And I think that's like one of the things I fight with in the very beginning of the school year. Like I am not your source of information. I am not your Google. So-and-so next to you is not your Google. Go sit back with it. Go take a chance to read and trust in your abilities. And I keep saying that I know you can code. What do you need just to stand next to me to show me that you can code? And we do that a lot in sixth grade. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that I found that I have to be really consistent with my own responses. Um, So the thing that I'll see is it's often easier for me to just give the answer, right? So if they're even for, for simple things, right? So if I give them the answer, when is this assignment due when it's something that they can look up for themselves or what's the proper name for this thing, then I find myself often doing the same thing for all the questions they need to answer on their own. So being consistent about if this is something that you can Google, then I'm not going to answer it. Or if this is something that you have access to look up, I'm not going to answer it. I'm not your shortcut to getting the information. But if it's something that's a good question, like why does this happen? Or when I'm trying this, I get something unexpected. unexpected. I've tried these things and I don't understand what's happening. Can you help me do it? Those are very different questions. Those are the questions that I will answer, not when is this assignment due or how much time is left in class which is the sign of like they're really bored or distracted or something like that. Or really excited and they don't want it to end. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. That doesn't happen much with the eighth graders. If they say when does this class end, they are not asking because they don't want it. That's funny. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like the second topic, like the environment. I think this year our room, our room environment, the physical setup is – the same as what we've had in the past year. We kept it very similar. Um, The major difference this year is that we don't have any kids in our classroom that are on Zoom. So we're all in the room together, coding together. It's a full house. Every seat is taken. Um, And I've noticed that that has some interesting um, side effects that I wasn't expecting, right? That students are much more likely to collaborate because the other person is right there. And it doesn't have to be instituted or initiated by us as the teacher, it happens more organically, which is, is nice to see happening again. Yeah. I think, um, I'm feeling that pain of no zoom for me. I've noticed the slower pace of, especially with my seventh graders, because they, they line up at my desk because I'm trying to code and we're doing a code along. They're like, this isn't working. And what happened? Can I just share my screen where everybody can see the mistake and everybody can fix the mistake. I've got these kids wanting me to look at their, their screen. So I think I am going to start implementing. We, we got a replit team. Um, maybe sharing that code there or just having everybody in replit so we can just click on that student's code. It's one of these changes that I need to start soon because this slow pace of um, can you help me look at this or can we can we try to problem solve this instead of it being a class thing that we had last year with zoom it turns into a me and a student thing and I, I don't like that because I thought I felt that that learning of seeing and mistakes on everybody else's code really helped push us push us to a next level and the empathy right is not just the the part about efficiency of, of solving problems together is the empathy of having people 
working together and seeing that everyone's making mistakes, how to solve them and how to overcome them and being able to relate to other people through the mistakes that we made. So I think that that's something that I want to bring back in some way, whether it's through Replit Teams or something else, but some easier way of sharing screens and, and being able to see what each person is doing. We're working a little bit in the eighth grade with code live share, which I think will be an interesting way of approaching this as well. But I'm constantly on the lookout for better ways to use the tools that they already have to be able to share code and share what's happening more so than looking for a brand new tool. Yeah. One other thing I'm trying to really focus on um, this year, especially with sixth graders, is watching my vocabulary when I'm talking to students. Um, I thought about this because I did a presentation this summer during our TTT about high expectation teaching. And I noticed when I was reflecting about how I would talk to certain students, um, I would be harder on specific students, a little bit easier on others. And I was not really um, focusing on my high expectations. So one of the things I'm working on with sixth graders is just to make sure that everybody feels that I expect them to work at the, the effective effort that they can provide. And that I told them, I keep telling them every day is just because Johnny is coding rock, paper, and six scissors in sixth grade and and he's off asking me to do all these things doesn't mean that's where you have to be. My expectations for you are different. And that's not because you're slower or faster or not as smart. That just means you're at a different part. And we I like to keep reminding them that that everybody's capable of doing the work that I am providing. When you get to that point where you're at that success level, I'm raising the bar. Right. And I'm saying that over and over for the past two and a half weeks with these sixth graders. And I think they're finally getting it like, Oh, you know, they're not screaming about these challenges and not crying, which is the first in three years that I haven't had a child cry every time I give them a class challenge. So hopefully fingers crossed it, it sustains throughout the year. Yeah. So what else are you doing different this year? Like what else is new and different in your curriculum that you're you're excited about or finding interesting? This is like me interviewing you, even though we spend the whole day together. Go ahead. I don't know about you, but I'm kicking myself in the butt for doing this. Um, I'm in I'm in grading H E double L hockey sticks. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, says my to-do list. <laughs> so I got this wild, crazy idea that we should do these class challenges every single day. And I got this from the JetBrains um, courses that I've been taking where you're supposed to go back and repeat topics. And we had these class challenges, but they were once a week. But now every time the kids walk in, they have a class challenge. So that means every time they walk in, we have at least one thing to grade per, you know, per class. I like it because it is giving me a great benchmark but it does take a toll on uh, uh, our time. Grading, so. Yeah, I think that's going to be a short-term problem, though, from what I can see. I, I really do, because with the new Replit team subscription that we have, I'm not ready to, to implement it yet or to deploy it to the students, but it has auto grading. It has unit tests that you can write for code. And so one of the things that I'm focusing on this quarter is collecting good daily challenges. So making sure we know which challenges work well, which ones the students are getting, because we do want that effective effort um, where a, a large portion of the students get the challenge and feel that confidence of getting the challenge. 
while other students, if they don't make it, are not that far off, right? Like they understand the concept, but maybe flubbed the execution. And if we can put in this auto grading where they can submit as many times as they need to until they get it right, I think it will train them to think about this iterative approach to solving the problem and how do you know that it's right by solving the problem in, a, in an iterative manner. So that's something that I hope will help a lot as at the same time it will reduce our grading workload because we'll know by the end how far did they get or how many tests did they pass to make it work. Yeah. And I think people, a lot of people ask us, can you share some curriculum, some lesson plans? And I think we've said this so many times, you know, we're perfectionists, although we both know that we'll never reach perfection, I guess we try. And so we're constantly making new, new lessons, new activities. We have the same concepts. Our curriculum is solid. But our lesson plans always change. Like today, seventh grade, Sean looked at me and I was like, oh, I'm going to code the deck of cards. He was like, okay, okay. we don't usually do that to fifth or sixth week. Like, eh, they wanted something fun and I needed to engage them. So I wanted to show them guess a card game because we had just done a guess the number game. And I wanted to bring in that function. So I'm gonna, my idea is to keep coming back to the card game to add in more levels of concepts. We'll see. It, it could be a total flop, but I got next quarter to fix it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We take an iterative, iterative approach to teaching. <laughs> the, but, you know, the good news about this is that because we've been teaching this a few years now, we have the ability to be more improvisational in the lesson planning, the selections, things like that, because we now have a backlog of lessons that we've taught and we can kind of teach that at a moment's notice. What's nice about that uh, approach too, because it, it can be, although it's in the moment, it can be much more energetic and engaging from us in the delivery because it's not something that we've taught the same way over and over and over again. We're pulling it out and we're trying to teach it in a new way or we haven't taught it for six months or a year in that particular lesson plan. So we have to remember how we did it or come up with something new. And so it feels new to us, even though we're very comfortable and familiar with the example. Yeah, I'm doing the same thing in sixth grade. I, I used to do the ice cream social app or make an invite app. And I gave them an, an, a concept. And I, between you and I, we hate when we give them something to code because there's never any fun for us to grade. So I told them today, next week, you're going to have 72 minutes. Um, you have to use the concepts on the board and you have to use a minimum of 30 lines. And I'll give you some random percentage of print statements you can use so they don't have 30 lines of print statements. And I said, and you're going to write a program. Yeah, and I don't know what you're going to write, and I really don't care as long as it's fun. You you're you're enjoying it. If you want to start writing it over the four day weekend, more power to you. You can iterate it and make it better. And they're like, really, anything? And I'm like, yeah, go for it. So I'm excited about these nice. little changes. Nice. Well, I mean, looking ahead, I am planning to finish up my review of Python next week. We have a short week due to the Labor Day weekend here in the U.S. and an extra day off that we put in there. Um, but I'm planning to to finish up my review of Python, the official part of it, by the end of next week. And then after that, in the eighth grade, I'm planning to bring them into some new territory that they may not have seen before. And we may spiral back on some of the concepts that we went over quickly during the review. But as an example, I want to go in and start bringing in some data 
right? Load some words from a word list and do some analysis on that. I think that lesson really is one of the first ones that gets students to think about how code goes from not just the code that they're writing and the instructions, but it can then be applied to a lot, th- a lot of things that are bigger than themselves, whether it's a huge word list or data that's on the internet or something that's new and surprising, if they type everything in themselves, including the data that's in their lists or in their dictionaries, it, there's no surprises there. There's no delight. There's no astonishment like, wow, I can't believe that that worked. You get that when you start doing files and live data and things that are real time. So that's something that I'm looking forward to doing with the eighth graders because that has been a really successful way of, of seeing those kind of like, ah, whoa, moments from the from the students. Absolutely. Oh, um, another thing we're changing this year, because, you know, again, trying to make things harder on ourselves, we changed the choice boards up. I saw somewhere on Twitter, someone did a this or that. Um, you, you know, keeping the same concept of, say, functions. And the kids have an option of doing this activity for function or that activity for function. And before we had, you know, pick pick four out of the seven or pick three out of the six. Now it's whatever this or that that we want to cover. And the kids can pick one or the other. Some of our kids are doing both, which is awesome. And again, that's been a, a good win. It's harder to code on the collabs that we're using in seventh grade. I think that's a little bit hard for me because I like writing comments on documents and it's not as easy to write comments on collabs. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing it. So I just end up writing comments in the LMS, but um, at least I can run their code in seventh grade, which is cool. Nice. Nice. Um, I think the other thing that we're doing and to switch gears a little bit from the pure computer science, the robotics uh, classes that we're teaching now have a little bit different bent to them. And and that's something I'm excited about. We took everything that was working really well last year with our exploration of robotics, you know, sensors and movement and deep racers and artificial intelligence, all those topics and themes within robotics. And we've made that a class and kept that going. And, and Kelly, you're refining that and adding to it. And it's, it's really cool. And then we've also brought in another robotics coach who's, who's leading up a competitive program to do VEX IQ as a competitive um, team-based competition with our, our students. And so we're seeing students gravitate. Some of them really want to get into the competition and win the game and, and do really well. And other students who are saying, well, there's so many other things that I want to play with. I want to explore. I want to try. And so our robotics program has, has, fractured a little bit, but in a really good way, because I think it's giving students more choices of what they want to do and how they want to engage with robotics. So it's we're a few weeks in, and I think it's already going really well because I'm seeing kids try things out, decide that this is right for them or not right for them and moving and then finding ultimately a place where they're much happier. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fun move. I've set up, I've set up the exploratory sort of like how I used to teach robotics. We have tons of challenges and we're doing Lego spike prime right now, just because kids can get in there, start building. And we had challenge already in the first two days of robotics club. And it's just so much fun. Cause you add that time factor of who's going to get first and they're not winning anything. It's like yeah. for a number on a, on a, on a sheet. And um, it's so cute. And the eighth grade boys that I have are helping the sixth grade kids. I have a bunch of girls in there and I don't know, something appealing about Spike Prime. It's just awesome. And I'm going to use a dance-off activity where they have to build the breakdancing bot. But I'm going to add a creative flair and, and tell them that they have to pick their own music and it has to 
move for 30 seconds to that beat. So we'll see how nice. that goes. Nice. Very cool. And I, I, what I like also about this is we have options for both of these programs when it comes to the coding side of it. So both the Vex IQ and the Spike Prime and a lot of the other programs that we're, or robots that we're using in the exploratory program have both block-based coding as well as text-based. So with Spike Prime, it's Python. It looks really nice and polished and, and it's so nice. Um, Vex IQ means I have to dust off my C++ coding skills, which I think I last touched back in like my intro to CS course 20 plus years ago. So, uh, you know, I, it's going to be interesting, but the nice thing about that is it's again, really polished, really smooth. So um, it doesn't have to be super complex to be very useful. It can be clean and simple and elegant. Yeah. The kids asked me, how do I do this in block? I'm like, no clue, but I'll show you how to code it in Python. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, if you haven't checked out Spike Prime um, editor, it, it's brilliant. They have this little sidebar on the right and it's like motors, sensors, et cetera, et cetera. And they have all the code scripted. So you just need to know where to place it, put in a couple of conditional statements in there, place your motors, make sure they're plugged into the right ports, and you can do a nice, clean code. Um, the imports come in. I don't know. I'm in love with Spike. Well, and that's that's the brilliant thing of the block-based coding. It's not so much the the way that it all snaps together like Lego blocks. That part is hit or miss, in my opinion. What's brilliant about the block-based code is that drawer of all of the different things that you can do and having it visible to the, the programmer. So, you know, the student who is coding a block-based program can look at this whole library and see all the things that are in there. And it also makes it easier for them to discover new things. So this may be kind of hard to fathom, I think, for a lot of text-based programmers who have done a lot of coding in Python or C++ or Swift or whatever. Um, we discover code, new code and, and new, um, new functions, new methods, new objects by reading through documentation or seeing a video or taking a training course or something like that. There isn't a place where you can normally look and see here are all of the pieces of code that I could be using here. And with Spike, because it's a relatively limited library, it means that they can put it all in there and organize the information so that you can quickly grab just the snippet of code that you need to make your Python code run. Yeah, it was funny though. One of our eighth graders who I've taught him in six I think I don't remember who I've taught and said it doesn't matter, but um, he's like, I want to put a variable. I want to do this. And how do you do a, a you know, an elif and conditional with a block? And I looked at him and I said, I have no clue, but here it's written in Python. Go figure it out in block code if you don't want to write it. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm asking the wrong person. I forgot block code <laughs> four years ago when they made me learn Python. So yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you don't have so much room in your head for, <laughs> for it, right? <laughs> Eventually, you have to garbage collect your brain. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, so let's see here. Other things that are going on around the podcast, there's um, some things that we've done. We're officially an LLC now in the U.S., so we're a registered company. We have um, we have a bank account. We have all kinds of stuff. Um, one of the things we're trying to figure out from just a po the business of podcasting perspective is how to monetize our podcast. So far, we've essentially paid for podcasting out of our pocket. We've had a few sponsors in the past, and that has been a really good thing. But we're trying to figure out the best way to monetize this. Um, you know, people who have kept us going are Patreon sponsors, for example. Our Patreon sponsors have been really, really helpful for ensuring that our show continues to get to everyone week by week. 
but we don't really know how to grow yet. We're working on that. We're trying to solve that problem because we know that there are a lot more people out there who are trying to teach coding, who are trying to learn coding, who are trying to bring concepts of computer science out there. And we want to get our podcast to as many people as possible. So we're working on a lot of new efforts and new initiatives from guests and influencers, people that we can connect with um, to increase the reach of our show, as well as bringing back um, some of our past guests that have been very popular and had uh, great conversations. A lot of our growth from this point on is through, you know, kind of better execution, I think, of delivering the podcast, um, reaching out into new channels like email, uh, more blog posts, things that help grow our, our reach. Um, without compromising on the things that apparently people really like, which is kind of the the conversations, the interactions, the authenticity of the teaching experience. And so as we grow, making sure that we keep that spirit of teaching Python in the community that has grown up with us uh, intact and, and thriving. Yeah. And, and on that same line is um, built when that building of our community I'm finding people that are teaching middle school Python little by little. And I want to, we want to, I say I, but we, we want to like meet more people out there. For example, I just met Tammy and I, I, I promise I'll get back to you, Tammy. We were, tw- we were tweeting together and I haven't replied to her email because my email's ridiculous right now. Um, but she also teaches middle school and she also is a new coder. And uh, we made this joke because I'm trying to learn Unicode and encode and decode and binary and all that gibberish that you computer science people knew. And she's just like, it's to make people feel dumb. <laughs> That's why they have it. And I'm like, oh God, thank goodness. There's somebody that understands me. And I think there are more people out there. So I think when we're growing with teaching Python this year, one of our goals is actually to grow our community um, we have a lot of developer people that are helping me learn, um, helping Sean thrive even more. But we also want to hear more about the teachers out there trying to get computer clubs going, trying to get computer science in their middle school or in their lower school and the high school or even college. Um, I think that's the only way that we can grow as a community and learn um, from each other. So. Yeah, I agree. And and so one of the things that helps with that growth is is the financial side of it, you know, finding the ways to to fuel that growth and and make it happen. So we're working on solving that problem. If you have ideas or thoughts and and things that you can share that that can do that without compromising the the community, um please send them our way. Like that's something that would definitely help us do a better job of of growing the community in a, you know, authentic and and sincere way. Can I share? Yeah. I'm always reading books. So I just got this book has nothing to do with coding, but middle school matters by Phyllis Fagel. Nice. Oh, I'm starting to read this book and I'm starting to think of in the classroom with computer science, like the things with middle school and learning to code and this risk failure. It brought up an interesting topic that Sean and I were um, discussing we have a couple of kids that are doing some learning some really cool and really strong code, but they might be learning it and going maybe not necessarily in the wrong way, but not necessarily in a path of good. How do I package up this really fun code that's going to open up 5,000 windows on so-and-so's computer? And we're like, eh. <laughs> you know, so this is that middle school mind understanding why middle schoolers take the risk. And I think that's something to think about when you're teaching coding and how to 
um, help them deal with dilemmas of online presence, um, digital footprint, making the right choices when you code, coding for social good. And I think this is just a nice book to read. Plus, I'm having a middle schooler next year. So as a parent, this is a parent book of what I'm going to face. <laughs> and I just started reading it, and it's really cool. Nice, nice. I, yeah, I think that that's some. Um, um, I'm looking forward to to stealing it from you after you're finished with it and, and reading more, um, because that's something that is really important to me. Also, it's not just the the technical aspects of coding or computer science; it's the ethical and the social emotional aspects of it as well. How do we help our students navigate? all of these new powers that they're getting and use them in a way that's that's appropriate and ethical and respectful um, because that growth and learning takes time also. So I'm I'm looking forward to to learning more about that. It's definitely something that I'm interested in. I mean, I know that when I was in middle school, I learned how to use Photoshop and and so I had like I think I think it was like 14, I had a state ID for like my learner's permit for driving. And so, of course, I scanned it in, and I gave myself a mustache, and I figured out can I can I change my my date of birth so it looks like I'm you know 21 or 25 or whatever, and you know not that it went anywhere. It's not like I turned that into an actual fake ID. But how do you make sure that that stays limited to an interesting exercise in learning Photoshop and not into something you know darker or more consequential for the student? So that's something that we're we're trying to navigate as well as teachers because I don't think it necessarily falls to any of our colleagues because they don't always understand the implications of what a student is doing on the computer the way that we do. Yeah. So that was another big push that I was thinking about this summer. And we were talking about digital citizenship and some of my tweets earlier this summer about were about implementing digital citizenship in, in the classroom, in the computer science classroom. I wrote a blog post about that if you haven't checked it out. And it's just this idea that our colleagues and not necessarily our colleagues here but my colleagues even in the past have said oh well you teach computer science so they're getting all their digital citizenship in co computer science and it's like mm, not so much there's a lot to do um, but we surely can help um, focus on topics with code and really highlight how the digital footprint can be made through a computer science class. So if you haven't checked out that blog, that was posted, I think last month. Um, okay. It's got some good hints. Yeah, I think it's true. Why would we assume that the digital world is somehow completely separate from the other things that we teach just because it's, um, it's online. So digital citizenship and, and responsibility for online behaviors is something that we all have a responsibility for. And maybe just in some areas, it's not so evenly distributed. Maybe we have a little bit more responsibility in the computer science or the technology realm, but that doesn't mean that um, it's less important in English or social sciences. In fact, I'd argue those are some of the perfect places to talk about these issues online. Looks like we have a few people on the live stream. So hi, people on the live stream. Uh, <laughs> nice, nice to see you in there. Um, if you have comments, questions, thoughts, please feel free to, to share them in the chat and we can address them as well. Um, I think we are kind of coming towards the end of our time, though. I'm trying to think if there was anything else that I wanted to talk about on the show this week. Um, Kelly, anything that you wanted to mention or anything else that's come up recently? Um, not much. I'm still working on my JetBrains Academy. I do have to give a thank you. And I'm just going to – they I applied for a three-month extension, 
and they were gracious enough to give it to me because apparently you're supposed to finish your study track in the short amount right. of time. And I emailed right. them and I'm like, I need an extension. So hopefully I'm going to finish that developer track. It's been really fun. Um, I have to say some of the topics are way above my pay grade at the beginning and I've had to reread them. So if you haven't checked out JetBrains Academy, I, we, they are not one of our sponsors. They should be. Just say amount of time I spend on their, on their website. Right. But if you haven't checked out their academy, it's amazing. Yeah, it, it definitely, like a lot of the examples that you've shown me, like how cool is this? Look at this example. Look at how they're teaching this idea. It, it looks like it's a really strong and, and clear example. And sometimes that doesn't always come through in educational materials that are written by developers because we have our own language. It's it's not the bytes and the bits and the binary and the Unicode and all that stuff that that excludes people. It's usually the jargon. It's the way that people write it. It's the way that they explain it, the examples that they choose that can be exclusionary, not the technology itself. So I, what I really like about what you've shown me so far is that the examples are clear, they're concise without being oversimplified or trivial, right? Sometimes the toy examples that are given don't really help because you can't relate to anything in there. So they've done a really nice job of making that work well. And the chunking of information yeah. is great. So, Oh, I did see something I wanted to pass along. It's from Reuven Lerner. A, uh, I'm going to put the link to his tweet in the show notes. It's a really cool kind of clever use of dictionaries. And actually, I think you could do it with a counter uh, object from the collections class in Python. But what he showed was that you can make a really simple histogram or value count bar chart by iterating over a, a pair of uh, dictionary keys and values. So if let's say a picture in your mind, and I'll, I'll post this in the show notes, picture that in your dictionary, each of the keys is a unique, you know, um, unique category like Miss uh, Paredes' students, Mr. Tiber's students. And then the value is the count, like the number of students in your classes versus my classes. And then what you do is you iterate over the dictionary.items method, right? So you get that those tuples of the name and the value and you print the name and then you print some character like an ampersand or a hashtag or something like that times the value and it produces the string that's the length of that value. So I'll put the, the snippet up there, but it was a really cool like four lines of code to produce a textual bar chart that uh, that looks pretty uh, pretty good actually when you get it finished. It's it's rather nice. Cool. Combine it with a little like padding and stuff like that so that it's uh, fixed width and you're in business. Very cool. Oh, um, what, it was funny because I saw the tweet today. I tweeted out, and I know we have to go soon. Um, about the AI and facial recognition, it's been something that's been on Sean's. Uh, to-do list forever. And we have the three AWS um, visual recognition. The deep lens. Deep lens. Yep. And so that was kind of the ideas. And I love, I, I do have to, I'm trying to find their names. Um, you know, I can't find the name right now, but the way that they set it up so that it is only taking the information locally. Yeah. Sashi, Sashi Krishna. Um, they made this board and it has facial recognition and it's on a Raspberry Pi because in in England or UK, you know, GDPR, where they have to like uh, make sure that none of the kids are being data sent out. Um, they did a really nice job. It'd be interesting to see how what they did on the back end of the Raspberry Pi and how they set that up. But John and I were talking about doing some sentiment analysis or something and I saw 
think that's pretty cool. So we'll yeah. See. Yeah. It should be really interesting. Cause I did that little tiny Python library that I made a, um, a few months ago called Pi encourage mm-hmm. and it gives you random encouragements on demand. So when we were, th- one of the things we were thinking about was, you know, assessing the sentiment and then when based on the sentiment, serving up some sort of encouragement, you know, so if they're not, if they're looking a little bit down, according to the algorithm, maybe give them something that encourages them and says, you know, keep going, you can do this, or, you know, people care about you. And then when we get to someone who's happy, you know, do something that's maybe appropriate for that as well. Like, you know, glad to see you're having a great day. Keep it going. You know, spread the kindness. Exactly. Pay it forward. Exactly. Exactly. So lots of, lots of cool stuff that we're going to share out. And uh, we are also planning to do more live stream recording soon. Um, You know, one of the things that kind of hit my teacher, um, you know, decision tree about how I was going to handle it was um, I'm going to be traveling to Alaska next week for my uncle's funeral. Um, He was very old and, and um, all for the best, right? It was uh, as, as best as any of us can hope to be, to pass through this life. Um, but I'm going to be out. And one of the things that I talked about with my student, I, I had to decide was how much of this do I share with my students? How much do I tell them the reason for me being out and where I'm going and, and things like that? And I decided to err on the side of being transparent and, and sharing with them what was happening. Um, but I will be out next week. We will resume episodes probably in another uh, week after that. Um, with our live streams. Um, I may try to do something from Alaska, at least being available and in touch, but um, I want to make sure that I'm there and focused on the right things for the right reasons. So if you hear more from Kelly than you do from me next week, that that is the reason why. Would that be scary if I did a podcast by myself like uh, that, you know, John did? I can't even imagine how he did it. But I would never marry without you, Sean. <laughs> It's a, it's okay. I mean, maybe I can get you like a crickets chirping crack track that you can use to fill in the the blank spaces when I'm not there, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's everything um, for teaching Python. We've got a lot of different places you can reach us. Our website is teachingpython.fm. You can always engage with us on Twitter at teaching Python. Um, there we have the, um, the Patreon account, which is always linked in our show notes. So if you want to sponsor the show and be a part of it, you can uh, join us on that. We are looking at adding some new Patreon tiers over the next couple of uh, weeks and months with some rewards and levels and things like that. So keep an eye on that. And let's see here. I'm SM Tiber on, um, on Twitter as well. Kelly is at Kelly Pered. I'm at SM Tiber on um, Peloton. So if you want to watch me work out infrequently, that's the place to find me. (laughs) Uh, And I think for teaching Python, that's it. So for teaching Python, this is Sean. This is Kelly signing off. (laughs) 